We're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, Mark, could I get you to pray for us? Our Father, we thank you for this time to meet with your body in this new facility. We pray for many blessings this morning uh, as we start new routines and uh, explore uh, this facility which you've given to us. We pray this morning that you speak to us in your word, that it would be a blessing to our souls as we Okay, I think this is our fourth Sunday in the Gospel of John, uh, and this is a, a passage that is, has meant a lot to me that we're really coming to in, uh, in John 3, but we've got a little bit to finish up in, in John chapter 2 first. So two weeks ago when we last met, we looked at uh, the wedding at Cana, where uh, Jesus turned the water into wine, and then we got started with the cleansing of the temple. But I would like to remind us of the wedding at Cana just a little bit. And so I decided to actually uh, open up by reading an Old Testament passage talking about the Messianic age, <clears throat> and then we'll talk just a little bit about the wedding at Cana. We'll go on to the uh, temple, and then we'll compare the two. Uh, this is uh, Amos chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise its, up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that many may possess the remnant of Edom and that all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of that land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And so this is a passage that's talking about the riches of the Messianic age, which is exactly what the, the miracle at Cana is signifying. Uh, Jesus is providing wine kind of as, as the, the true bridegroom. He took six uh, stone jars that were used for ceremonial cleansing. They were filled with water. Uh, the ceremonial cleansing would be kind of part of uh, kind of legalistic uh, practice and turns that into wine, which is uh, kind of a symbol of joy and feasting and happiness. So th this, this is very much a miracle that represents the bounty of the messianic age, the, the blessings of God that God is pouring out on, on his people. One of the things I didn't quite talk about, and so this is going to be the first question on, on the handout, uh, that I, I think it is worth mentioning, is that the master of the banquet was surprised by the quality of the wine. And the master of the banquet observed that normally you put the good wine out first, and once people have drunk enough that they can't really tell the difference, then you know, the, the lower quality wine comes out and uh, people don't really notice. But what Jesus has done is he's provided better wine going forward. Uh, I think John is not just telling us that Jesus made good wine there. He is telling us that. But I, I think he's contrasting the way that the world functions versus the way that God functions. In the world, the world will give you the best it has to offer first. And you know, as time goes by, it just get, kind of gets worse and worse and worse until you're numbed to everything and you can't tell the difference between quality wine and two-buck chuck. Uh, the, 
the way that God provides is God provides good at the beginning, but he provides better and better and better. Uh, and I think that that is a contrast that John wants us to see that that's there. So I, mostly I just wanted to remind us of, of that miracle because we're going to come back to it when we finish the temple. But uh, the first thing I'd, I'd like to really get into today is to finish the uh, account of the cleansing of the temple. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, read that. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you do to, uh, do you do to show us for, or what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 40 years or 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. <clears throat> when therefore, he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word of Jesus, uh, the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus recognizes that the temple was meant to be a house of prayer. And I think it's particularly significant when we looked at a, a picture of the temple that almost certainly the money changers and the oxen and everything would have been in the court of the Gentiles, which is the only part of the temple that Gentiles would have had access to. And so they were kind of particularly being excluded by the, the actions of the religious leaders who weren't properly governing worship. Um, we, we looked at the Pharisees' response last time. They questioned Jesus' authority, and they, they had a, a, an element of uh, be, being in the right for, for doing so. Not just anyone can uh, disrupt the way that you know, uh, worship functions. Um, so there was a sense in which they were reasonable for doing that. But there were some problems. For one, they were probably profiting from the trade that was going on in the temple. They were probably charging you kind of rent for the sellers and the money changers that would be there. That's probably more what their motivation was than actually propriety. They should have been stepping in as the... Those that were kind of over how Judaism was practiced at the time and making sure that worship was being conducted properly and they weren't doing their jobs. Uh, they, they should have recognized that. They should have, should have seen in Jesus' actions that, uh, that uh, what Jesus was doing really didn't need to be done. And finally, they should have seen from Jesus' teaching in Jerusalem and the, the signs that he was performing that Jesus did have the authority to do that. So, the question then becomes, uh, they ask for a sign, Jesus does not provide for one. Why doesn't he do it? Uh, a sign would validate his authority. And in, instead, he kind of gives an answer that to them would have been very cryptic. You know, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Uh, his disciples, of course, recognized what he meant by that three years later when he was raised from the dead. But that wouldn't have made very much sense to the religious leaders at the time. 
I think when it comes to not providing a, a sign, you know, Jesus, for one, has provided enough signs already. Uh, but it, it, it certainly is interesting to, to point out that Jesus has never once performed a miraculous sign when it's requested for the sake of doing a sign. Now, he will perform miracles and does perform miracles, especially in the synoptics when people come to him and request miracles. In John, it's kind of interesting. A lot of the miracles that Jesus performs are not requested. He, he sees a need and, and steps in without the request. But, you know, either way, he's kind of doing it, uh, <clears throat> kind of for, for the sake of the, of a person in need. But he doesn't do it simply for the sake of performing a sign. Um, Jesus knows perfectly well that in three years, he's going to provide the most astonishing sign that the world has ever seen. He's going to rise from the dead. And the response of the religious leaders, the same group that he's talking to now, more or less, is to bribe the Roman guards to say that the disciples stole the body. They saw the sign very clearly. They knew what it meant. And instead of uh, recognizing it and responding appropriately, they tried to suppress that truth. So... I think Jesus, for one, knows that a sign won't do any good. Um, What they need is they need a change of heart, and that's actually what the the next chapter is going to be about. I think one thing that's kind of worth mentioning, we we see uh, part of the the response of the religious leaders, they say that it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And it's probably good just to have this background as we kind of go through John. Solomon originally built a temple, and that was destroyed by the Babylonians approximately 600 A.D. I don't remember the exact date. You can look it up. Um, Seventy years later, a small fraction of those that were exiled returned to the Holy Land, and they built a much smaller temple under Nehemiah. Um, those that remembered the grandeur of Solomon's temple actually wept when they saw you know, how much smaller and simpler the, the rebuilt temple was. Fast forward a few hundred years, Herod, the dynasty of Herod has established itself, and one of the Herods decides that you know, he, he can kind of score some points with the Jews by expanding and, and rebuilding the temple. And so they start the project of renovating the temple, and so that temple would be called Herod's Temple. And it's been being built for 46 years. It's got another 30-some-odd years of work left on it. It's actually finally completed a few years before the Romans destroy it in 70 AD. So this, this temple would have been functional, but it still would have been under re- renovation. Uh, so that, that's what they're referring to. We, we could say quite a bit about um, you know, Jesus' response, you know, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus is you know, telling the, uh, the Pharisees that he's the true temple. And I'm going to resist the temptation to do that. We'll come to that elsewhere in, in John. Another question that I think is worth asking is you know, what, what does John do in this section to point to ch- Jesus' true identity? Um, first of all, one of the things that John is doing is that, uh, or John is pointing out is that Jesus is asserting that he has the authority uh, to regulate how the temple functions. You know, he, he would, would not be in the right to stand up to you know, kind of corrupt practice in temple operations if he did not have the authority to do that. Um, in fact, it's very easy to imagine you know, an, uh, one of the Old Testament prophets doing something very similar to what Jesus does. And so I think there, there might be a, an element of Jesus kind of fulfilling his office of prophet uh, in, in his actions here. Another thing that Jesus says 
uh, is that he refers to the temple as my father's house in here. And that's one thing that I find a little bit surprising. Generally speaking, when Jesus makes a claim of divinity like that, the Pharisees kind of latch on to it. And they don't hear. I'm not not exactly sure why, but it certainly is a, a claim to divinity that, that Jesus is, is making. It's a, a clear statement of his sonship. Um, another thing to notice is that we, we, we did talk a little bit about how there's some controversy among uh, scholars as to whether you, there are two cleansings of the temple. That's probably what I would lean towards. Uh, and this would be an earlier uh, incident that just happens to be very similar to the way that the cleansing of the temple was handled three years later as it's recorded in the, in the synoptics. But a, a lot of decent you know, reformed scholars would say that John has intentionally taken a story that's happened later and he's moved it earlier. Either way, John knows that this is going to stand out. He knows that we're familiar with the synoptics and that we're going to say, wait a minute, why is this here? Why isn't it where we were kind of expecting it to be? And the the answer is is certainly that John needs to have this story here to catch our attention for something. Moreover, it is very rare in the Gospel of John to see something that's recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. John does not bring something that has been covered to his satisfaction elsewhere into his gospel unless he has a very specific reason for doing so. And so that's something I spent a little bit of time racking my brain about. Why are these two stories together? <clears throat> the, the best that I can do with that, the, the connection between these two, is that we see uh, in, in the, the, the wedding at Cana, God kind of lavishly pouring out his blessings on, on the people of God. Um, I, I think this actually kind of goes back, and I'll, I'll put this verse up, to the prologue. Uh, sorry, the verse should be verse 5, not 16. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. Let me, let me see if I can convince you of that. So let me kind of read how Isaiah describes the blessings that God is pouring out in the Messianic age. I'm not going to project this. Just listen uh, to, to how Isaiah describes the Messianic age. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the people and a leader and a commander for the peoples. So the, the point of the miracle of the water into wine is that Jesus' coming is good news. It's, it's really the best good news. It's tidings of great joy. God is richly and lavishly and abundantly providing for his people. In the meantime, what are the people up to? Some of them are selling sheep and exchanging currency. Others are profiting from that transaction. Others, as we see in a few verses, are interested in being amazed by a miracle or listening to clever teaching or perhaps finding their idea of a Messiah, but they're unwilling to accept Jesus as the sort of Messiah that he actually is. We're going to see that in the, the verses that we're coming to. The temple points to the reality of God's presence with his people, and Jesus is the ultimate expression of that. No one, aside from a few disciples who were following Jesus, really understood that. I think what, what John is doing is he's kind of vividly contrasting what's going on 
in the worship at that time, how people are responding to Jesus, to what uh, what God is doing. And I think that's the the reason, at least in my mind, that these two passages are together. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. Um, I think we're, we're seeing John kind of uh, flesh out what that, that means. We're going to look really quickly at a, a very short section, uh, just three verses, or four verses, I guess, before uh, John chapter 3 starts. And we're actually not going to finish this section. We're going to uh, come back to it when we get into John 3 a little bit. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Um, if we uh, look in here, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. A more literal translation of 24 would be that you know, Jesus did not believe in them. Uh, it's the same word in Greek. It doesn't quite come across in English, at least according to the commentaries. <clears throat> but you know, there, there's definitely kind of a, a connection there. This is something that we'll, we'll see quite a bit in the Gospel of John. John will make a statement. Sounds great. Many believed in him. How could that possibly be bad? And then John will follow it up with something that's unexpected. And he's doing that to catch our attention. And what's unexpected is that Jesus recognized that there's something inadequate about the way that the, this crowd is responding. Now, I think there are enough clues that we could get it right just in the, the context but it turns out, I think, that chapter 3 has something that's a lot more helpful for understanding it. So what we're going to do is we're going to start chapter 3, and then we're going to come back and see why it is that the, the response to this crowd is inadequate. So let me read the first part of chapter 3. And keep in mind, chapter divisions are a convenience. They were added about a 1,000 years after John wrote. So um, they, they should always be ignored, and sometimes they actually kind of get in the way of seeing meaning. I think... Uh, this is one point where the chapter division should not have been added. It kind of obscures things. But let me go ahead and uh, read chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are, you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not hear, know where it comes from or where it, where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, You are the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses was lifted up, or as Moses lifted up the servant, the serpent in the wilderness, 
so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So, What I'd like to do is I'd like to take out the chapter division, which in this particular instance I think is unhelpful. Uh, and it actually uh, obscures us from seeing something and kind of look at how the last four verses of chapter 2 connect with the first few verses of chapter 3. If you look through there, you'll see a word that is repeated a little bit more often than seems natural. None of the particular uses would stand out quite on their own, but you see, certainly see a word repeated quite a bit, and that, that's the word man. <clears throat> um, he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So this is in the, the context of the crowds that somehow had an inadequate faith that Jesus uh, rejected. And so then it, the, the uh, text would continue without any chapter breaks in the original, now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him. So the, the question then is, why is John going a little bit out of his way to repeat the two and, that, and to re repeat the use of man? And obviously, it's to connect these two passages. I think what John is telling us is that Nicodemus is one of these individuals that has, you know, some sort of a faith in Jesus. He, he recognizes that uh, Jesus comes from God, according to what, what Nicodemus says, and according to what John says about the crowds. But that faith is inadequate. <clears throat> so uh, Nicodemus is going to be kind of the representative of this crowd. And as we're going to see, he's not just kind of an average member plucked out of this crowd. He's going to be the, the best... Uh, representative that this crowd could put forward. He was extremely knowledgeable, uh, extremely uh, zealous uh, for his understanding of the, of the New Testament. We're, we're going to say a little bit more about what the, what the Pharisees were. So why does Nicodemus believe that Jesus is from God? And Nicodemus tells us, you know, because Jesus is able to work miraculous signs. So in, in one sense, that that's positive. The, the signs of done as much as the signs can do. They've pointed Nicodemus towards Jesus, but they haven't given Nicodemus an understanding of who Jesus really is, according to what we we see written here. Um, you know, if, if you step back and think about it, anyone you can kind of look at a miraculous sign and investigate it and say, okay, there, there's something supernatural going on here. That this must be from God. You don't need the new birth to do that. You do need the new birth to recognize Jesus for who he really is and respond to him with saving faith. And I'm going to take us back uh, to a, just a really quick phrase here in, in John 2, 22, to, to contrast it. When the, you know, the, the disciple or the, the crowds were seeing the, the miracles, they were responding to that. But look at what 22 says about the disciples. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered uh, that he had said this, and they believed the scripture. 
and the word that Jesus had spoken. And so there's something a little bit different there. They're seeing that uh, Jesus is who the scripture is pointing to. So that their, their belief is something a little bit deeper and a little bit more profound and more scriptural than just recognizing that you know, Jesus is able to perform miracles and is connected to God somehow. And I think that is uh, kind of what, what's wrong with the faith of this, this crowd. <clears throat> the, the, the belief doesn't really go past Jesus' ability to perform miracles. So next up, I'd like to come back to Nicodemus and just ask a little bit about who Nicodemus was. What would he be like? Um, is someone knowledgeable of first century Judaism would actually be able to take a, a pretty clear picture of what Nicodemus would have been like uh, from, from this first verse. The, the first thing I'll remind us about Nicodemus is that he was a man. And by that, I mean that he's a part of this crowd that has inadequate faith at this point. The name Nicodemus is Greek. It's not Aramaic. And that suggests that he has a, a, a decent level of uh, education. And in fact, there's actually some extra biblical sources that, that mention a family that Nicodemus presumably would have been connected to that was fairly well to do. It's not clear that Nicodemus was a member of that family, but it does seem likely to me. Uh, every, everything else that we see about Nicodemus would be consistent with that. It says that he's of the Pharisees. And we get uh, a, a lot of ideas from that, some of which are helpful and some of which aren't completely helpful be because of the way that the Pharisees get portrayed in Sunday school classes very frequently. The Pharisees were the most conservative of the Jewish sects at this point. Uh, in fact, of the Jewish sects that existed, theologically, Jesus would have been a lot closer to the Pharisees than any of the, any of the other sects. Um, the, the Sadducees were kind of the religious liter liberals of the day. They rejected large portions of the scripture. They rejected the idea of the resurrection from the dead. Uh, the, the Pharisees were very conservative. They had a very literal interpretation of the Old Testament. They had an incredibly high view of scripture. According to Josephus, there were about 6,000 Pharisees at the time. It was a, a small but very highly regarded sect because of the, the level of zeal uh, for the, the Old Testament that the Pharisees rightly had. Um, you know, a good Pharisee would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. They would have memorized the Psalms. They would have memorized other portions of, the, of, the, of what we now call the Old Testament as well. They would have had an incredibly detailed knowledge of Scripture. It would, have, it would put anyone in this room to, say, to shame um, how well they, they knew the Scripture and how much time they, they put into diligently uh, studying the Scripture. They were rightly zealous to obey God's law. Now, we, we know that they kind of overstepped in the way that they did that. The, the law would say you don't work on Saturday. And they would say, okay, well, what's work? And they would come up with a definition so that if work would be someplace here, they would draw the line right there to the point that it was almost absurd. Yes? So the, the Levites would be kind of a, a section or a, 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 one of the, the, the tribes they were charged with the priestly duties. As far as I know, the priests still would have been Levites at, at this point. Um, 
I'm not positive on that. So that, but Levites would be more of a um, hereditary title. Some would, some may have been Sadducees. It's hard to say. A lot of the Sanhedrin would have been Sadducees at this point. The Pharisees were a smaller sect than the Sadducees by quite a bit. They didn't have as much power on the Sanhedrin as the Sadducees did. The Sanhedrin, by the way, um, good that we brought that up. Uh, it, it means 70. It's a group of 70 leaders that were in charge of uh, how Judaism was practiced. They were under the thumb of the Romans. They had to behave themselves. And they had to compromise things a little bit because of that. But uh, Nicodemus, from how he is described, is probably a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, kind of that, that upper 70. Um, the, the phrase ruler of the Jew probably meant uh, that he was on the Sanhedrin. So, you in the, the quick Sunday school definition that we that we get of the Pharisees that they were hypocrites that they um, <clears throat> you know kind of had this really strict view of the law but they didn't keep it themselves that is true but they went probably about as far as human effort can take anyone to try to obey the law and that's not an entirely bad thing uh, the, I think the problem is they. They only went as far as human effort can take them. And they, they didn't see their, their need for God's grace. So I, I'd like us to have that picture of Nicodemus as we start to, to look at this conversation. The next thing that we'll see is that John mentions that Nicodemus came at night. Uh, at a surface level, that could suggest different things. One that would not be familiar to us, but is kind of innocuous, is that Apparently, it was uh, customary among uh, Jewish thinkers at the time to discuss theology at night. And so it, it, it may be that this was sort of the appropriate time for him to come and have a theological discussion with Jesus. I think it's more likely that he was a little bit embarrassed because uh, the, the majority of the Sanhedrin did not consider Jesus to be from God. So I think it's more likely that he was you know, coming at nighttime so that he wouldn't be seen with Jesus. But I think John means a little bit more than either of those by this. Uh, he, he, he certainly means at least one of those two, probably the, the second. But at a literary level, if John is mentioning daytime or if he's mentioning nighttime, he almost certainly wants us to be thinking about light and darkness. Light and darkness, as we've seen in the prologue, are really significant themes in the Gospel of John. And so let me just kind of show us a few other places where John kind of uses the idea of dark. Jesus uh, says in chapter 9, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light by the light of this world. But if anyone walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And finally, uh, in, in chapter 13, there's an extended section. I'm, I'm tempted to read it. I've given you the verses for it. But this is where uh, Judas you know, has kind of decided to betray Jesus. Uh, um, Jesus finally tells him, what, do you, what you are going to do, do quickly. Um, and... So after receiving a morsel of bread, Judas immediately goes out to betray Jesus. 
And that section ends with the phrase, and it was night. It was night, but you can see that at a literary level, what John is saying is that um, Judas is in the dark. And so I think what, what John is telling us by the fact that uh, you know, Nicodemus came at night is that Nicodemus is still in the dark at this point. Now, if we were you know, in the position of Jesus where we were kind of trying to establish, trying to get a message out to the Jews, we would think, oh, if, if you know, someone like Nicodemus kind of takes notice and comes to you, think this is great, I'm finally kind of getting noticed by you know, the, the highest parts of established Judaism. You can see that Jesus is not impressed by the fact that Nicodemus is coming to him. Um, he, you know, although Nicodemus' statement sounds very good at the surface, Jesus recognizes that Nicodemus is not coming to him yet with, with adequate faith. And Jesus is going to confront him with that. And uh, that, that's going to be the, the theme of this. Um, the, Jesus describes the difference between where Nicodemus is now and actually having saving faith as, with the analogy of new birth. And in fact, that's one of uh, the, the favorite ways of describing conversion that Christians have, or our, our favorite, one of our favorite ways of uh, describing re- regeneration. Uh, one thing to kind of keep in mind as you read this is that the phrase could probably be just as well translated uh, born from above uh, as born again. And there's real question as to which of the two is the, the better translation. I think both of them really get at the idea. I don't think it's important which one we decide on, but it might be worth keeping that in, in mind. So I'd, I'd like to spend a little bit of time looking at... Uh, at the expression for regeneration that Jesus uses, uh, born again, uh, it's clearly a picture of salvation. But what aspects of salvation does it emphasize? I, I think probably the, the main one that, that Jesus is getting at is it emphasizes a radical and abrupt change. You know, it, it's not, okay, Nicodemus, you're doing this, this, this right, but these things are wrong, you need to fix these things. It's the, the best of human efforts. Someone that has spent his life studying scripture, who has devoted his life to trying to obey the the law meticulously, they're not even on the right path. They need to throw all that away. You might remember that Paul talks about his life as a Pharisee. He would be in a very similar position to Nicodemus at his conversion. He considered everything that he did before rubbish. Uh, The the word in Greek is actually a little bit um, less polite than rubbish. <clears throat> but completely worthless, dung. Um, Nicodemus needs to uh, jettison all that and uh, needs a, a brand new beginning. It's not self-improvement. It's not getting his act together. It's not trying harder. It's not following a better set of rules. It's a completely new beginning. Uh, Calvin has a really good observation here that I think is worth pointing out. He says that uh, the expression born again by that, Jesus means not an amendment of a part, but a renewal of the whole nature. Hence, it follows that nothing in us is not defective. It emphasizes God's sovereign action. One does not choose to be born. Um, just as uh, physical life ultimately comes from God, spiritual life ultimately comes from God as well. 
And we'll see this point reinforced later in the section when Jesus talks about uh, the wind. Um, There, there is another thing that we may well see in the new birth. It, it, this is certainly true. I don't know if Jesus meant it when he came up with this uh, expression for regeneration or this picture of regeneration called the, uh, the new birth. But typically, someone enters Christianity with very little knowledge. Uh, elsewhere in scripture, uh, a new believer is called a spiritual babe. And uh, you kind of gradually grow uh, in your knowledge as, as you understand the gospel deeper and deeper and that understanding of the gospel transforms you to who you are, or who, who God has called you to be, would be a better way of saying that. The, the last thing that we need to keep in mind, even though this is one of our favorite pictures of regeneration, it's an incomplete picture. The Bible uses a number of different pictures for regeneration, and none of them completely get at the reality of, of what this is. Uh, this might come closer than, than some, but I, I think it is worth looking at a few others before we, we go on. There's a couple passages in Ezekiel that we, we could look at that say something similar. I'm just going to read one of them for you, the others in your notes. And I will give them a new heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their uh, flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and may keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. There's a, a later passage that says something very similar to that. But I'm going to just summarize that, that a heart of stone is changed to a heart of flesh. It's a, but it, it is a, uh, God's sovereignty is emphasized there. Um, you know, this is something that God does. That's not something that, that, uh, they do, they have any part in, uh, you know, according to, to both passages in, in Ezekiel. Another way that the new birth is described is in, uh, 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, uh, that person that is in Christ is a new creation. So new creation uh, is just kind of how I'll summarize that picture of the new birth. Uh, in Ephesians, and you were dead in your trans- transgressions and, sed- and sins, and God made us alive. And so that this is death to life. And again, it's a passive uh, action on our part. God made us alive. It's not uh, we made ourselves alive in there. Oops. Um, I don't have the verse, uh, missed that on my slides, but uh, Colossians 3, 9, and 10 have uh, a phrase that I'm going to summarize. You have put off your old self and have put on the new self. So there's an old self that is taken off, a new self that is put on. That particular expression doesn't really emphasize sovereignty. It's kind of in the minority. Uh, but you know, the old self off and, and new self on uh, would would be the kind of summary there. And in First Peter, we're called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so that, that's from being in darkness. In, in darkness, you're really not able to see uh, clearly anything that's around you. If uh, we were in complete darkness, I wouldn't necessarily uh, be, have a, an easy time figuring out what this room is like. I wouldn't know what the, uh, the, there, there's chairs out there. Or I'd be stumbling around. I, I wouldn't have a good perception of reality. Uh, once we see who God is, what our, our uh, place in his creation is, then we can we have light. We can kind of rightly see reality for what it is. And so all of these are, are different aspects of the new birth. So, 
Nicodemus has a, a, a problem with, with this. He's kind of uh, puzzled by, by what uh, Jesus says. And so if we kind of think about what the new birth is, what is it that Nicodemus is most likely to, to have a problem with? I think one of the two things that would probably be the largest one in my mind would be the idea of a new beginning. You know, Nicodemus, if, if anyone is on the right track on their own efforts, it should be someone like Nicodemus. There would not be very many people that would be in, in better shape through self-effort than Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is being told, you know, everything that you have done is completely worthless. You need a, a, a brand new start. Um, you haven't even begun uh, to, 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 um, to enter the kingdom of God. The, the next aspect, though, we, we see in a lot of the pictures of salvation, God's sovereignty emphasized. It's not something that, that we can bring about. It's something that God does. And uh, that, that certainly is emphasized strongly in the new birth. And I think that's what Nicodemus is, is recognizing. And I think that's why Nicodemus says, well, how, how can I bring about this new birth? Uh, effectively, when he says, you know, uh, how can this be? Can I crawl in my brother's room and be born again? Um, but Nicodemus is stunned by this idea that there's a lack of human control, that he has to depend on God for that new birth. Um, living as a respectable Pharisee in the first century would require an extraordinary amount of determination and self-control. Nicodemus lived a life of uh, putting to death many uh, you know, idols of fleshly desires so that he could worship you know, the idol of self-righteousness. Um, he hadn't actually made any progress spiritually. He just traded some idols for others. Yes. Um, as far as I know, there are no extra biblical writings that give us anything about Nicodemus, aside from what I came across, that you know, his, his name is connected to a family, that, that, and that family is wealthy. We see Nicodemus come up a few more times in the Gospel of John. Um, he's not in the other Gospels, but he comes up two more times. Once he kind of stands up and tries to soften a, a harsh stance of the Sanhedrin towards Jesus, and another time, he's involved in uh, helping to bury Jesus' body. So those are hopeful signs. Um, but it's interesting. You know, Nicodemus, in this encounter, we have no hint that he understands what the new birth is when he leaves. Um, he asks some questions. And you know, his la the last question that he asks, he clearly doesn't get it. Jesus keeps talking to him. And he isn't mentioned again. So... It's not clear exactly if Nicodemus did respond in faith eventually, and if so, when. Not as far as I'm aware. Do you know of any, Tim? About Nicodemus? Well, any uh, extra biblical sources about him? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a dangerous thing. You know, if, if someone is put to death by the Romans, you don't want to associate yourself with them. You know, especially you know if you're on the Sanhedrin, which you know is a um, it, it's under the thumb of Rome, and the Sanhedrin was very careful to avoid 
doing anything that would uh, have Rome, you kind of clear out the Sanhedrin and you know, put a new bunch on. Um, so th- th- there are certainly very hopeful signs that we see in John, but I, I wouldn't say that either of them are clear on their own. Okay. Well, this is probably a good stopping spot. Any other questions? We could probably, probably have time for a question or two. Yes. So the, the question is, uh, you, did the Jews believe that if, if they could kind of get good enough obedience to the law, kind of among the people, that they would trigger the coming of the Messiah? I'm not positive. I, I suspect that something along those lines probably did exist in the Pharisees. They, they certainly, you know, and, and you can kind of see that in the Old Testament, that you know, if Israel could kind of get its back together, God would uh, be able to, to better bless the people. Um, I, I can certainly see them having a belief like that. I, I, I think you're right, but I'm not positive. One more? Yes. So the, the question is, what's the difference between the disciples' faith and the, the faith of the crowds? Um, and I think that what we can see is the, the crowds could see a miracle, and they could tell that there's something to Jesus, but they didn't see past that, that miracle. Um, you know, if, if you had a friend that was paralyzed and had been paralyzed for 10 years, and that friend you know, went to some sort of a miracle healer and you know, through some sort of hocus pocus, that guy says, "You know, get up and walk," and he does and is healed. You, know, you could kind of recognize that that guy is able to perform miracles. You'd be interested in who he is, but you wouldn't necessarily have saving faith in him. Hopefully not, because it's not Jesus. Um, and I, I think that's the sort of faith that the crowds had. They they recognized Jesus as someone that could perform miracles, and they were interested in the miracles. But they didn't see Jesus as who the Old Testament is pointing to, God's redemption. The, the disciples, you could kind of see, they're looking at what the Old Testament is saying about who Jesus is, and they're starting to make connections that Jesus is you know, the Messiah that's being pointed to by the Old Testament. So that there's a little bit more depth, there's kind of a bit more of a scriptural understanding that I think John is trying to help us to see. So the question is, would it, would it be fair to say that Nicodemus knew the scriptures but didn't associate Jesus as the Messiah that the scriptures were pointing to? Um, mostly, yes. So one of the things that we're going to see as we continue on in the Gospel of John is that there was an expectation of a political Messiah. Um, in other words, 
what, what the Jews were really looking forward to at this time is not salvation from their sins, not a Messiah that would deal with their problem with sin. The problem with sin isn't really on their radar. They have a much smaller problem. They have a problem with the Romans occupying their land. And they're expecting a Messiah that's going to come in and do the much smaller task of throwing the Romans out and kind of bringing in a messianic age when the Jews get to do it to everybody else what the Romans are doing to them. Um, and so Nicodemus may well see Jesus as that sort of a Messiah. But he certainly doesn't see Jesus as a Messiah that's able to deal with his sin problem. Okay. Okay.